You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. We are fortunate once again to have Erica Graham joining us. Erica is a preacher, a writer, storyteller, and uh, is a teaching pastor at Ecclesia in Houston. And yeah, here's Erica. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Before we get started today, let's pray. Dear God, I pray that as we take time out of our busy lives, beginning of summer, that we will feel your presence today, that we will be inspired to be the hands and feet of the love project that you have started, not only globally, but here in this community at UBC so that me, we may live out your vision here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. So for those of you that joined us last week, I was um, preached last week as well, and I have to be honest, there's something awkward about being a guest preacher. And that is that when huge events happen, like what happened in Uvalde, there's this thing where you don't really know me and I don't really know you yet. And a lot of times with the preacher um, talking to a community, we have already built trust. And that's something that we haven't had time to build. You might not be willing or wanting to listen to a 34-year-old um, give her entire political agenda for what reform could look like, especially when you don't even know her yet. And I don't blame you. I don't know that I would either. Because trust happens in relationships and communities. But here's what I can say, and this is part of the reason I think UBC is such a special community. First of all, it goes without saying, I hope you know how unnormal it is to have somebody write songs for that specific Sunday and sing them. That is not a thing that happens. So, um, Jamie, thank you for the beautiful worship music. I don't know where you are, but thank you for um, synchronizing your lyrics with the message so well last Sunday and again this Sunday. But one thing I want you to know is that when I preach here, I wasn't asked to give a political sermon or to avoid politics. UBC just trusted me to give a sermon. And that's not always the case. I've guest preached at churches before that they say, whatever you do, leave the politics out of your sermon. Or I've guest preached at other churches that say, sermons are supposed to be political. We are an activist church. Bring on the politics. And UBC is a community that just is rooted in trust. And so today, I'd like to approach this sermon the same we did last Sunday, and that we're going to look at the liturgical calendar, which is the seventh Sunday of Easter, which is the text we just read in John. But I'm going to take the advice of one of my favorite professors, 
and it was at Rice University. He's a Hebrew scholar, Dr. Matthias Henze. He said that oftentimes preachers should hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand. Or they should read the newspaper and hold the Bible in the other hand. And I think that when we hold those two together, that's when we can find that this ancient wisdom written 2,000 years ago is still very relevant today. So I want you to think about where you were when you found out about either the attack in Buffalo or this past um, mass shooting or attack on Robb Elementary. Where were you when you first got the alert? Was it from a friend, a Twitter account? Was it on the radio or the news? I want you to think about what your body did. For me, my face got hot. My heart started to pound as I got an alert on my phone. What emotion did you go to in that moment? Did you go to fear, anger, grief, a combination of all three? I personally went to fear and my husband went to anger. But I said, um, okay, if I'm preaching this Sunday, let's know where the exits are. Let's, um, maybe we'll just keep our son home because mass shootings tend to breed more. Let's homeschool our son. I start making these drastic decisions in one second. We're homeschooling, we're keeping everyone home, shutting all the doors. I go, I, I go to fear and in intense fear. We're not that rational in fear. And then I get angry. And I think part of the reason that we have such bodily real reactions is because that energy can be used to transform, as we'll talk about later in the sermon. I also thought, and maybe um, these incidents bring up Moments in your own life where you've had to face gun violence. If you're a student, maybe you grew up doing these active shooter trainings in your own school. I thought about, um, as I was a teacher, I taught freshmen and sophomores, and I remember doing these drills in my own classroom. And I remember one time there was an active shooter somewhere on campus, not in our building, but we didn't know that. And I remember some students starting to cry, and I had to pretend like I was calm. I remember turning off the lights and shutting the blinds and getting my class in the corner. And I remember being afraid but pretending like I wasn't. And there was one student, Davis, who I'll never forget. And Davis was a sophomore, and he had a larger body than mine. And he said, Miss Graham, get behind me. I said, Davis, that's not how this goes. Get with the rest of the class in the corner and be quiet. Minutes went on and we actually decided as a classroom that we were gonna take my big bookshelf and shove it in front of the door. And so a couple students helped me drag this heavy piece of furniture in front of our door. Now it ended up being a drive-by shooting in the neighborhood and 
there was no real permanent threat in my classroom. But I remember that fear. Later on in the school year, I actually had a student that I adored and loved, and he was smart and funny and well-liked. Excuse me, sorry about that. Um, he was an amazing kid. He brought a loaded gun to school. And I found out after he had left my classroom that that was with him in his pocket that day. I watched him get arrested outside my classroom windows. I loved this student. I'm not here to preach a specific solution, but I do want to refer to the prayer that I gave last Sunday because I think it's so relevant again today, and that was from Mother Teresa. And if you were here last Sunday, you know we read a quote from Mother Teresa, and it went like this. I used to pray that God would feed the hungry or do this or that, but now I pray that he will guide me to do whatever I'm supposed to do. I used to pray for answers, but now I'm praying for strength. I used to believe that prayer changes things, but now I know that prayer changes us and we change things. Now, I don't think Mother Teresa thought prayer didn't work. I think quite the opposite. She was probably a very serious and faithful prayer. She was Mother Teresa. I think that's funny too, thanks. But I also think Mother Teresa knew that it wasn't just prayer, that we had to be co-conspirators with God. And that's why she said things like that. And ironically, today, on the liturgical calendar is John 17. And while our nation is divided once again, arguing about what the solution is, the liturgical calendar suggests a passage on Christ's unity and the power of coming together. And so we read it earlier, John 17, 20 through 26. We're going to read it again because I always reread the text. It's just, you can never have too much Bible. It's my theory. So John 17, 20 through 26. Um, to set the scene, this is Jesus' Jesus is giving a final farewell prayer at, um, at the meal. And he says, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So in this prayer, Jesus is saying, Basically, God, I know that you are in me and I am in you. And now that I am going to leave, all these people have me in them. And therefore, you in them. And me and you and you and me. Simple, right? Sounds complicated. 
But what Christ is saying is that now that he has gone to be a witness to who the kind and loving God and Father is, we are the ones who are left to be that witness. And we have to unite under the love and kindness and generosity of our God and take the place of Jesus who came to show us what that looked like. It's simple, but it's revolutionary. You know, in our Christian language, you may have used the word witness before. We are to be a witness to Christ. That's what this text is really all about. Now remember, um, I grew up UCC, then Lutheran. Then in high school, there was a church that opened up with a fog machine and a band, so I left my family behind and I went to this other church, as cool teenagers do. And then in college, I did some kind of evangelical-y type summer camps and later found Ecclesia when I was 22 years old, which was 12 years ago. And um, throughout that journey, I um, dragged my Catholic husband to an evangelical camp one summer. And um, someone told him, they said, man, I love your witness. And Garrett said to me, he said, this is the second person that told me that. What are they saying? I'm like, oh, witness is like a term that Christians use to say that you're, you're doing a good job. It's a compliment. And Garrett was just like, oh, okay. I think I understand. Thank you. But that's what it's asking us to be in John. The witness to Christ because Christ is going to ascend and no longer be with us. So what does it look like to be a witness, to believe in John 17, to be united? I don't think that unity always looks like peace. I think there's this misconception that if we are to be united, that we all agree that it's kumbaya, there's no differences in opinion, but we should all believe the exact same things. And I don't think that's what unity looks like. The Bible often talks about unity in diversity. I think UBC is an example of a church that exemplifies unity in diversity. Unity does not equal peace, but we can use the tool of peace to unify in a community. We can use our pain to transform. You know, my husband and I have been in Waco for eight days now. We stayed, we didn't drive back to Houston. And um, I apologize, we were those annoying Waco tourists that you probably don't always like. And um, we don't watch Fixer Upper, that's not a show that we know a lot about. But um, we were talking about it because if you're a Waco tourist, it's like one of the attractions. And I was saying, you know, it's kind of weird that this show about transforming homes, that it would create this huge wave of tourism to this town, so much so that Waco is now one of the number one tourist destinations in 2020, all because of a show? Is it because of the show? Is it not because of the show? 
Is it because people think Chip and Joanna are charismatic or adorable or celebrityhood? We, we started talking about what is it that a show has this kind of influence on a community? And I think I have a theory that it's something a lot more deep than just a show. I think in this show, we see old, broken down, run down homes transform into something beautiful and stunning. And somewhere in our Christian bones, in our human bones, we want to believe the same is true for ourselves. That in these stories, we want to look at our own roots, in our own bones, and believe that a transformation is possible. Because I don't think the show would be that inspiring if they just knocked down the home and put up a skyscraper. I don't think that'd be a show. I think what's inspiring is a story that uses what's already there to rebuild something better. And that's the entire resurrection story. It's not that everything's torn down and rebuilt but what remains is transformed to become something better. I think that's the story in the Bible, the story that Christ offers us. And it's easy to live in the fantasy of transformation. You know, even we went to a store this past week, and I almost bought a bandana to tie around my neck. And in my mind, I was like, you know, when I go out to let my chickens out and feed the cows, I will tie this bandana around my neck. I start envisioning this life that I don't even have. I'm like, this bandana makes me think that I'm living in this fantasy that like doesn't exist. When I go home, um, the upstairs air conditioner isn't working and I have dirty laundry. But like in my head, it's like, oh, I'll be out with the cattle and my bandana on. We get sold these fantasies. The transformation is beautiful and easy, but it's often painful. It requires a knockdown. Maybe, maybe it even requires something like this past week for us to finally use pain to transform. That's always the invitation of pain. What is the invitation on the cross? It's to new life. The story doesn't end on the cross. The same is true on a personal level, but also a broader political level. How are we going to use this to transform instead of do nothing and sit on the cross in the pain and participate in the insanity? Richard Rohr has a quote about transformation and he says, if we do not transform our pain, we will almost assuredly transmit it. I wonder and think about the times in my own life where I've not transformed my pain. I wonder and think about how pain gets transmitted how the active shooter so clearly transmitted his pain onto the wrong subjects. 
how political systems can transform pain. Paul Tillich has a definition that is the complete, he defines sin as the complete opposite of John 17. Remember, our reading today, that if I could summarize it in one word, it'd be unity. Christ was in God, God was in Christ, Christ is in you, you are in him, God is in you. It's all one. It's an ability to see that there is no separation between God and us, but God is in us. It's an invitation to unify. And Paul Tillich defines sin as one word. That's the opposite of unity. He defines it as separation. That simple. Sin is separation. He says... In any case, sin is separation. To be in the state of sin is to be in the state of separation. And separation is threefold. There is separation among individual lives, separation of a man from himself, and separation of all men from the ground of being. This threefold separation constitutes the state of everything that exists. It is a universal fact. It is the fate of every life, and it is our human fate in a very special sense. So with that, here we see, I wonder what it would look like to draw near to God, to use this pain to transform not just our own lives, but our communities and our ways of doing things, to reimagine how not we can tear everything down, but to use what is and remake better, to remake new. Because to not do so would, would be to believe that we are separate from these problems, that there is such thing as an other. And this text reminds us that God is in all of it. He's in all of us. And if we believe that somehow we are uniquely separate, that is what it looks like to sin in the Christian tradition. Because we're invited to a story that believes that everybody belongs and that transformation is possible, not when we go out there and holler and um, fight, although sometimes that's necessary too, but within the church we come together and we agree upon solutions that move us forward into a deeper love and understanding and what it means to unite under the love of Christ. UBC, let me pray with you. Dear God, we thank you for this text. We don't believe that it's a coincidence that we are called to imagine what Christian unity can look like when our world is divided. We trust that we will feel your presence and inspire us to enact what it looks like to be the hands and feet of your church so that we can make political changes, personal changes. And we know that the political is always personal and the personal is political and to believe we are separate is to believe in sin and participate in it fully. We trust that you have a better story 
and that this is the beginning of a transformation story because pain is the fuel for something better. Just as you died on the cross for us, we believe that our pain too can be transformed with your help and prayer that inspires us to act. In your name we pray, amen.